It's it's all the stuff that that didn't make the flannel graph in Sunday school. That's right. right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Irenacast. I'm your host, Jeff, and with me, as always, is my brother-in-law, Alan, and his cousin and my friend, Mona. We are post-evangelical ministers and theological thinkers grappling with our place in the progressive Christian world. Thank you for joining us for another conversation on faith and culture. This week, we're going to be wrapping up our series on biblical interpretation, and uh, our guiding question for this conversation is going to be, how do we read the Bible in and out of context? And for our segment, we're going to be doing something new called Biblical Oddities. But before we get into the conversation, just want to remind everyone that last week we made an announcement about our brand new book club that Mona's going to be leading. So if you want more information on that, you can go to our website or check the show notes. So yeah, so with that out of the way, now let's kind of get into the, the last part of this conversation. So how do we read the Bible in and out of context? What, what do we mean by this question and what are some of the things that are important for us to understand? In the first episode, we talked about the Bible as literature, right? Talking about narrative and form and genre. In the second episode, we talked about the Bible as being written over time, as having sources and editors. In this episode, uh, we're actually talking about the history behind the Bible, what the world was like when it was written a little bit. And then we're going to talk about how it has been read in different contexts since it's been written. So that's the general flow. But the technical terms, again, are historical criticism is what it's called, and reader response criticism. So the Bible in its original context, and the Bible in new contexts. Because believe it or not, the Bible sounds different to each of us. Right, guys? Nope. Always <laughs> the same. Well, when Yesterday, we got off today, the last- and forever, man. Yesterday, <laughs> when we got off the last podcast, when we got done with the recording, I was like, "Shoot, we didn't talk about the Septuagint older or the Vulgate." And Alan's like, "I know." So we had to. We decided to start with that kind of first. Now, um, so it because ha- it has to do with both source criticism and reader response because. Uh, so the Septuagint is a translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek and the Vulgate is the translation into Latin. Um, so the Greek came first. Is that right, Alan? Obviously, because Greek is older. Um, and actually, uh, the New Testament writers relied on the Septuagint. So they weren't working in the original Hebrew and Jesus wasn't quoted, isn't quoted to have been quoting the original Hebrew. Jesus was working with the Greek version of these texts. So Anecdotally with this, I, I don't know how many of you have ever noticed if you read through, especially Paul, because he likes to quote the Old Testament a lot. And I remember when I was young, going back and looking up the verse that Paul was quoting and realizing, wait a minute, if he's quoting the Bible, why is it different? And why does it sound different in the way that I read it and the way that he quotes it? And that goes back to this whole idea is dealing with different languages. And we talk about how we have to maneuver through translation to kind of get to the heart of the meaning. Essentially, Early Judaism during the time of Jesus had to do the same thing because they weren't they weren't dealing with an original translation. Yeah, and that's because the language of the empire was Greek, right? So if you're going to make your religion relatable to the empire forces, it has to be translated into the language that they use commonly throughout the empire. So a lot of people in Jesus' day actually, if, if they were highly educated, they were schooled in Hebrew, but a lot of people would work with Greek reading and writing, so they or Aramaic, but they were more uh, that was spoken. But the Greek was the written language. So anyway, um, all that to say, the Septuagint has been really, really, really important in the 
convergence of uh, Christianity kind of becoming what's considered a more universalized religion that's not just for a specific set of people, but that would be translated and actually kind of co-opted by empire and by the Roman Empire and then later translated into Latin. So it's interesting because it's it's reader response in that uh, the people translating the Septuagint and the Vulgate were translating it into terms and words that they understood, right? As we talked about, the same translations issues that we have today, like Jeff said, are, they also had. Um, but then it became, those things became sources and still are sources because sometimes when we have discrepancies um, in translations, we'll go back and look at these other uh, Septuagint and Vulgate texts, even though they're not as accurate, quote unquote, as we would consider other versions, uh, translations of the Bible today. Uh, they're still really important sources. So that's super interesting, right? Yeah. And to spell it out a, a little more, I guess, clearly, one of the examples of this is there's language that's used in the Hebrew Bible that's reflected in the Septuagint and the stuff that the early church had that actually distances God from doing stuff. So instead of saying, you know, God did X or God did Y, it would say the spirit of God did this or the wisdom of God or some sort of distancing language. So the context that the writers of the Septuagint were in and and other people was one where monotheism was super important, especially when you look at like Roman culture, Greek culture, and the pantheon of pagan gods and stuff like that. So protecting the transcendence of God was on their mind. And so when they they translated these documents, that was a flavor that came out of it. So that's that's a pretty interesting wrinkle to think about. But the, the context that you're in is important, right? The original context is important for the authors, the readers. And the con. Well, and I was going to say the context also influences the theology. Like um, before the Babylonian exile, for example, the you can tell it's an earlier text because the biblical writers talk about the presence of God being in Zion, in Zionistic theology, like the, the actual real presence of God, like seated on the throne in, in the temple in Jerusalem. But after the exile and after Jerusalem was destroyed, they thought, well, either God couldn't protect us because if God's presence is in this city, in this place, uh, either God can't protect us or we got our theology wrong. And so later texts talk about the spirit or the name of God being in Jerusalem, but not the actual presence of God. So that's a really interesting theological shift that was a direct result of the political context of the time. So kind of an example of what you're talking about, mm -hmm. Alan. And so I think we can move in this conversation from less controversial, maybe to more contested or controversial. And I think the, the less controversial question is what's the original context, right? Everybody wants to know that. Everyone wants to know what's the history and the setting of the, the, the world behind the text. And just to give one example of a question about something like this and why it's important, when you read stuff in the Gospels, for instance, about uh, the Syrophoenician woman, Jesus meets with this woman and says, <laughs> you're, you know, your dogs, you're not fit for the bread of, for the people of Israel. He's not going to heal her daughter. And to us, to our ears, like, wow, that's really striking, right? Well, we, we miss a lot of the meaning of the original setting of the world. Like, what did it mean for a Jewish man to speak to a non-Jewish woman? And it says she's from Tyre. What does that mean? What does it mean to have somebody from this more powerful northern area? And it turns out when you ask these historical questions, it brings a lot more meaning out of the text. Jesus wasn't being a jerk. It was that he was actually addressing a political reality that existed at the time. Tyre was uh, a much more... Uh, important politically. And Nazareth in that area was the breadbasket of Tyre. So when Jesus says like, oh, this bread for the children of Israel, he's actually 
possibly calling into mind political realities that existed at that time. And there's other reasons in the text for thinking she was a richer woman. But there's all this meaning in the history that we miss if we read it out of context. So it's helpful to read it in context and see what's actually going on. What are we missing from the world that surrounds the text? And it's also important to realize the different historical contexts. So, for instance, they could be writing about a certain era, but writing it in a different era. So one of the examples of this would be Matthew. If you read through Matthew leading up to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew was written decades after the instances in which the book is is describing in its narrative. And not only was it decades later, but it also was written after the fall of the temple in 70 AD, right around there, right? Yeah, 70. Mm-hmm. Which, from a Jewish perspective, was a catastrophic shift in how you had to interact with your faith and your daily life because everything that was central to what you believed was literally destroyed. So how do you reframe everything? And if you read through Matthew, there's this very, like, very deep and connected acknowledgement of their Jewish history. Like, even though our temple is gone, our history is not gone. And then it moves into kind of chapter four, where you have Jesus's narrative of of being in the wilderness and how each of those are kind of Jesus redeeming some of the past mistakes of Israel. And then it moves into the Sermon on the Mount. And a large portion of the Sermon on the Mount is here, you've heard it said this, but I say to you this. So there's an acknowledgement and a holding with value of their history, but then also we still need to move forward. And what we were is a part of who we were going to become. So you have to take into account those two conflicting historical contexts within something that was written, depending upon the distance between the events and when it was written about the events. Yeah. And sometimes studying, often studying the historical context uh, with all the players in the story or all the, you know, the time period, if you're going to look at, um, you kind of start working down the line. You start kind of with the literary context, and then you look at the political situation of the day, the cultural situation, the social situation, maybe even the psychological situation. The sits in Leben, like we talked about in the first episode of literature, it's a German phrase for setting in life. How is this text used in the in that setting in life, or like what was its intended purpose? Perhaps as much as we can gather. Um, anyway, if you go through that process of just kind of chunking that out and. Um, and and kind of trying to understand the larger context before you try to apply it to present day, right? Um, if you go through the whole thing, it can actually make so much more sense. The Bible makes so much more sense if you do that. <laughs> um, and to add to the list of examples we're giving, the Samaritan woman. Um, a lot of people think that she was a, a harlot or somebody who had been married a bunch of times. Um, but if you actually look at the situation, so the Samaritans and the Jewish people did not get along. They worshipped on different mountains. They were they were neighbors, but total enemies for, for centuries. Um, so when Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman, it's totally like politically and gender breaking all these rules, right? So she comes... Uh, she comes uh, to him and they have a conversation and um, he tells her at some point in the conversation, hey, go get your husband and come back. And the woman says, I have no husband. And Jesus says, this is in John 4. Jesus says to her, you are right. You have no husband. You've had five husbands and the one you're with now is not your husband. And so if you read that and you just take it literally that Jesus is talking about her husbands, she's either probably going to get mad at him or keep talking about her husbands or her family life. But the woman says to him instead, Sir, I have 
I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain and you people say Jerusalem is where you ought to worship. So she doesn't talk about her husband. She's talking about a political situation. So if you start digging into this story, you realize that some, the Samaritans had had five different overlords in a short period of time. And the overlord that was ruling them then did not have a sort of political legitimacy for being over them. And then Jesus, so they're agreeing on the political situation. She calls him a prophet because he knows a lot about their political situation. And then he starts telling her that the time is coming when we will worship in spirit and truth. So he's, he's, prophesying, or probably this was written much later than this conversation actually happened. So he's referring to the fact that the universalism of of the Jesus movement is going to open up a sort of unity between the two places and that will surpass political realities of the time. Okay, so reading the historical political context, actually, this particular text makes so much more sense because like, why would she say he's a prophet if she has, you know, he's talking about her love life? It's kind of weird, right? Mm -hmm. So that's a good example of historical context. And sometimes it's difficult to determine <clears throat> the original context and the context of the author. Like sometimes it's obviously a huge gap. Uh, you have stuff written in the Hebrew Bible by people in the kingdom, uh, people in the exile, even after the kingdom has been destroyed and they're gone, writing about stuff that happened before Israel was formed. You, you can tell there's like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of difference, but uh, simple things in history speak a whole lot of significance that we just don't have anymore. So digging down into those details is an essential part of biblical interpretation in my mind, regardless of what venue you're coming from. To understand what it most likely meant to the original people is like a starting point. And I think I just want to throw this out here early. There's a guy, Bailey, Kenneth E. Bailey, who does wonderful work on reframing our our concept of Jesus in particular, he wrote a book called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, Cultural Studies in the Gospels, and just kind of like decontextualizing the Gospels we have written it as we have read it and to recontextualize it with what did this look like to people who lived in the Middle East uh, when it was written? And it's just opens up entirely new worlds that we don't even realize are there. So that's one resource that Super I would cool. recommend. Yeah, especially the parables. Man, some of his stuff on the parables... Yeah, I, I when, you, when you read Bailey, it's like I have been reading this wrong my whole life. <laughs> you know, like wow, I've been applying these things to my life. Yeah, so I would recommend that to to anybody who's interested. But that's that's the first step is historical criticism, discovering what stuff actually was like for the authors or for the original people that, that the authors are writing about. But that's not the only thing that's important, right? We've talked about a lot of other things, and now we're going to talk about what is it like to read the Bible in different context so there's yeah i think that's probably the easiest for people to connect to because yeah. that's what we do today right mm -hmm. um we mentioned in the last episode an, a concept called reader response and that's just the it's a pretty contemporary form of criticism some of these older like literary and source criticisms have been around for almost 100 years but in lo much longer some of them um but reader response is more contemporary it has to do with um it kind of arose with like modern philosophy and psychology of like how, like I said in the last episode, how these texts um, are kind of like clothing that are worn by the people who deal with them and like take the shape of the person who deal with them. So whether that's us or that's someone, you know, a, an academic or someone in power, like it's, it's really important for us to be aware of what we bring 
when we read these texts and what presuppositions that we might not even realize that we have when we come to these texts. And that could be as simple as like our natural inclinations for how we read a book or like how we, you know, maybe a story when we uh, told a certain way when we were a kid or told, taught to understand some certain things. And for those of us who were in church for a long time, we're definitely like, our, we've got like railroad tracks in our minds for how to interpret these texts when that might be uh, pretty influenced by other contemporary people and not really related at all to the historical context. So I, I would like to give one caveat before we begin this part of the conversation. And that is there are people, including me in the past, who thought that they didn't have a context. There was a denying that we even read from a certain perspective. I can vividly remember being in my church history class in at Master's College and hearing from the professor about all these different uh, people throughout history who read the Bible different ways. And then he says, and even today, you know, the, the state of things are so bad because we have all these different kinds of theologies, all these different readings of the Bible from the black community, from women, from this, we have, you know, black theology, feminist theology, this theology, that theology. And it's important that we just get back to the original thing so that we can read it for what it is and not be twisted. The pure yeah, interpretation. The pure. And, and that, <laughs> that is the, outright denial that even white evangelical males <laughs> have, and that's what the theologians are that I come from, white evangelical males have a lens that they read the Bible through. Not one of us, none of us on this planet, when we pick up the Bible, stand on this mountain free from all lenses. And I don't think it's even possible to do that. I think the the important element of biblical interpretation is to understand what lens you have in relation to other lenses, and to own that for real, to be like, this is my reading because this is my context, and to yeah. be conversant with the other contexts that are out there, to be like, well, this is not the only way to read it. Other people see it differently. That's just to be honest. Like That's not even a theological question for me. That's just being honest with where we're at. Well, and I think because of that reality, our tendency is to do whatever we can to eliminate lenses instead of collect lenses. And I think mm. that's probably the best way to go about it is that, okay, here's my lens. I understand it. But now, even though we'll never fully understand someone else's lenses, because I think that needs to be said because they're so they're so specific to certain contexts and certain groups, but that doesn't mean we don't collect and we don't become aficionados of those other lenses so that we can expand our view of the Bible. And it doesn't mean that the spirit's not operative in all those different lenses, you know, that the spirit's operating differently in different places at different times. Uh, I don't, I don't know. Right? I, I don't know what, what, if I agreed to that to some extent, <laughs> I think that's really up to us to, sure. to do with it. I think, I mean, as much as the Holy Spirit is involved in our whole lives, right. But, um, I, I know I have a slightly different understanding of, uh, the inspiration in scripture than you, but I was going to sure. say the, the sure, biblical sure. criticism and biblical studies in the academy started flourishing under the Nazi regime in Germany. And it, and it was incredibly anti-Semitic. We've talked to this in the past. So I think, especially in light of that history where like the German, Academy was the objective pure Aryan uh, group of people interpreting the Bible, white white men and white European men. Um, that's still to this day, that lineage still hangs around. So what you said, Alan, is super important that we all recognize what we're bringing to this thing. And some of this conversation started when, you know, in the 60s, the 60s, 70s and 80s, when, when people of color, when women, when... Um, non-empowered groups started reading the Bible and saying, and, and, and with their lenses and with their perspectives started drawing out incredible new understandings and meanings from these texts. Like I'll give you an example really quick. Um, 
I read a bunch of commentaries on Exodus by uh, many different types of people. So there was someone from Latin America, there was a feminist scholar, there, on and on. And then there were Native American scholars who studied biblical literature. And theirs was incredibly pessimistic. They're like, you know what we see in these books? When, I, when we read these books, we see all of the peoples that were eliminated on the way for this group of people to get to Canaan. We see all of the genocide. Like you you all have missed this, but we see it because that's what we went through. And we we have an ear to it. You know, so, so there, it becomes incredibly important to hear from all of these different perspectives right um but all that to say what happened was these these uh different groups started reading from their lens and saying hey look what we found because we're reading this from our perspective and then they started pushing back against like the old bearded white guys saying no you have a like alan you said you guys have a context too and we are going to pester you until you admit that you don't own the objective interpretation of these books there's no such thing so that was my spiel (laughs) Yeah, and, and that'll never happen, by the way. Us old bearded white guys are going to hold on to our fantasies <laughs> nah. as long as possible. Well, and it's funny that you said, weird. though, because um, it, it, it kind of defies all reason and logic and even to my understanding faith that like you could presume that there would be a single interpretation. I mean, look at the Civil War. You have two sides of the country using the Bible for their side and thinking like legitimately like people in the South were told the Bible condones slavery. And if you don't go fight for it, then everything we believe about Christianity is wrong. And the people in the North are saying the Bible can the Bible says we should free the captives so if you don't go to war everything we believe about the bible is wrong i mean those those two sides use the bible for the exact same purpose in opposite means and so um they're both right and they're both right they are yeah <laughs> i mean that's the thing so, that's that, that's the thing i think you can't if you study even american history what 1700 years later 1800 years later after the bible is written you can't make those claims you just can't I mean, we can't even agree on the speaking of American the the Constitution, and that was only in written, English, you know, yeah. a couple hundred years ago, and it's you know a couple yeah, a couple pages. Absolutely. So, <laughs> I, I still I think that there are more faithful ways and less faithful ways to read the the texts as they are, as we like using logic to understand what they are, who probably wrote them, why they wrote them, that kind of stuff. But I, I think it's the why. It's the interpretive why question. Like, so what significance does this have? Like, those things are very difficult to nail down, and so that's why you're saying it's 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 different for different communities for sure. Well, I don't I don't want to get too off course, but where's that line? One of my professors told me this story about a student that he worked with, where she was reading her Bible, and. She got through. She got to the the verse that talks about that Jesus his his uh, his burden is light, his yoke is easy, all that kind of stuff. So the girls, she's reading this, and it's having this profound effect on her. And she goes to my professor later and starts explaining this experience that she had. And she says, "And I was just sitting there, and I felt God's love pour over me like the warm yolk of an egg, and it just." covered me and which is a clear wrong interpretation right i mean <laughs> jesus wasn't talking about an egg yolk he was yes. talking about oh. something else but she had this profound spiritual experience which i don't think anyone can take away from her and it doesn't mean that it wasn't real but based off of a completely wrong 
historically inaccurate and all kinds of different ways, biblical interpretation. Now, I use that as, as more of an anecdotal example, because obviously we can pick that apart pretty quickly. But where, where do we, how do we decide what's valid and what's not? Is it the ends that justify the means or how, how, where do we stand on that? I, I have a pretty simple perspective and maybe this is wrong. But I feel like you really do start with historical criticism. You, you you can't just leap over the original meanings of the text, the original settings, and then get to whatever. It's not like opening the Bible and just sticking your finger in it. I'm not saying she didn't have a spiritual experience. That's wonderful. But I think for best practices for a community of Bible interpreters, it's not just up to everybody's individual interpretation necessarily. You can't just make it mean whatever you want it to mean. There are real more mores, like real places where the Bible is is anchored in, in some history. It has been written down by real people. And uh, you can't just hop over that to get to whatever interpretation we want and claim that interpretation is as valid or legitimate as all other interpretations. To me, that's, to me, that's not right. And so I think dealing with the original text is the beginning. Like dealing with what it means in its original context is the beginning that you start with. And then from there, we jump to well, what does that mean? How does that impact us? How does that sit with us? Like, <laughs> how do we react to the text? Those questions are different for each community, but you can't just jump over the beginning first step. Yeah, and I, I would say, I would say too, like that verse, "Yoke is easy, burn is light." That's referring specifically to Roman rule and how oppressive it is to be imperialized by a. That's communi- funny because that, that would never. Level. That's so funny because that in that verse was. Uh, when when we learned about it in youth group, it was always just historical context was like okay, yoke meant like you know like an ox, the, like an yeah, ox. that's the yeah. historical context. So, so, and that's so there it. was no yeah. there was no understanding that okay, maybe that's that's actually a word used for rabbis teaching, right? Is a yoke, or that maybe could that's also be an calling, interpretation, or right? maybe that's yeah. calling into uh, into mind the oppressive yoke of an oppressor and Jesus or, or the oppression of the yeah. Pharisees as a religious Absolutely. regime, but it's talking about yeah. political oppression pretty sure. clearly. Right. So I would say, okay, this, this girl, um, it's very nice that she's reading the Bible for personal edification. And I would say, you know, that verses has an ethos, like an ethos of comfort. And I would say, yeah, she got in the ballpark, but you know what she missed out on? She missed on the radical political revolutionary teaching and what that might, how that might transform her instead of having like a momentary, nice, comforting feeling while over her she missed the opportunity to become more politically aware about you know how how things happen on a communal level and systematic oppression so i think it can cause us to miss out actually um by not doing the hard work of really understanding these texts and reading about them not just reading them Uh, a crazy making example that i have is um two of them jeremiah 29 11 for i know the plans i have for you says the lord plans to prosper you and and not to harm you plans to give you hope in a future that Over verse is quoted door in every christian oh, household oh my in gosh that, <laughs> if you read the whole chapter you're like whoa there's some violent stuff in there but i mean how do you tell i don't understand how that just gets applied like a like a sticker to things so like what do you, how do you tell someone that like who's about to lose a loved one or who's about to get laid off or who you know i i just that promise was not for you. I'm really sorry to tell you, but that promise was not to a, a contemporary American. That promise was made to the nation of Israel 3,000 years ago or whatever. That's not for you today. I'm sorry to tell you, but it's not. It was not written you with are, you in mind. It wasn't. <laughs> you were asking us to actually engage the Bible outside of our consumeristic lens. Right. Because in a consumer lens, everything is for me. Everything it's a is happy about promise. me. And I can, Yay! Yeah. 
it's all meant for my edification, right? I right. can just open the Bible and pick something out and it's, it has to be immediately applicable, right? It has to matter in my life right now. Yeah. It has to fix some desire or meet some need. And like that, that's a lens that we read with without even knowing. Right. You know? All the <laughs> time. Uh, the pair of Jabez you know is the not other one. Everyone, not everyone has read with that lens over history because not everyone's no. been a consumer. You know? We'll read the whole chapter and you won't get to the same conclusion. That's the thing I'm saying. If you even read the chapter it's in, you can't just slap that onto your life. It doesn't make sense. So, Well, and I, th- I think that example introduces kind of where I stand on this whole thing is that there's a difference between someone individually finding comfort in the way something is worded purely in their own context. If And I think it's fine if that comfort for that individual person is in the context or the consistency of the overall view of where of who God is or how that person interacts with God and what they hold true in scripture. I think the problem is, is when we take that on a larger scale, when you have someone who's in authority, who's a teacher who then takes that interpretation and presents it to people or a mass group of people as something that's truth. Because I think there, I think there is that line. Like um, we get the weirdest things that are encouraging and we can even recognize like I could read through Jeremiah twenty nine eleven or Jeremiah chapter twenty nine and understand on one level this is important. But individually I can read that one section and go, you know what, I need to hear this right now. But I understand that that's in this context where I'm at. Because I think that's how we naturally look at the world in general. And I don't think that we should undermine that the Bible is anything different from anything else. So, you know, how many of us have been inspired by a song lyric that's out of context or whatever, but we, we internalize it and that's personal, but it's when we impose that thing onto a mass group of people is where we run into the problem and where it becomes, I think, irresponsible, if that makes any sense. Yeah, so but I still who, think it's... Who's, I who's still to make th- a decision? Still, who's to make the decision about what she needed necessarily? Like, just because she felt that doesn't mean she needed that. I mean... I know this is just one example and we're, you know, getting into the particulars of it. But if the yoke actually meant what Jesus was asking her to do, if the yoke was referring to Jesus's teachings, uh, maybe it wouldn't be just that she had this spiritual experience where like the spirit of Jesus is just comforting her. Maybe it was like, maybe the whole point of that passage is supposed to tell her that actually following in the way of Jesus and doing the stuff Jesus does is an easy thing to do for these reasons. You know what I mean? Like that that's a totally different um to say that someone has a spiritual experience in my opinion does not mean or has an interpretation does not mean that's the interpretation they need or the experience that they have to have or should. But no have. one can choose you that but themselves. So if they feel they yeah. need it in the moment then they do need it in the moment. Like we can't impose that that need or definitive answer on the person. If that's what the girl felt in the moment, that's what she felt. We also can't rule out the psychosomatic possibilities that mm-hmm. she was looking to feel that way and therefore did. And that's exactly. a really maybe cynical. And I'm not trying to take that experience from her or say it wasn't legitimate. But I think a lot of times we use the Bible to manufacture comfort for ourselves because we need comfort in that moment, not because the Bible is trying to give that to us, but because we use it for that purpose. I'll give but you we do another that with, example. We do it with all kinds of stuff. Sure, we do. We do it with everything. And yeah. there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, like, I, I don't think that no, I don't think there's anything is. wrong with it. I don't. I think there is. I'll give you an example. Respecting the Bible for what it's supposed to be, yeah. and that's yeah, supposed to make us uncomfortable. At certain I'll moments. give you an example: the prayer of Jabez. Do you remember when that was a huge craze? I remember that one. Yeah. For I still a while, <laughs> in for the while in the I think early two thousands, there was this big. For those of you who are too young to remember, there was this big like 
uh, I don't know, it was like a fad in the evangelical world of the prayer of Jabez. Like, I remember I saw like blankets with the prayer of Jabez and bookmarks and coffee mugs. I think it like, was it was just book, everywhere. Right? Yeah. Okay. It started it was, out as a book. I was, book. I worked okay. in a Bible bookstore when this came out. So oh, I remember goodness. all the craziness that came from it. So the, the prayer goes something like, God bless me and expand my territory and people. And, and then I think God did in the, in the book. It was a very simple prayer. Um, and, and people started praying it, but as this like, expand like make me prosperous god for your glory you know so like if you expand my territory then i'm gonna preach your name louder because i'll have more people to influence but it kind of turned into this like god wants to make you wealthy in some ways or god wants to make you more famous or influential or i don't know it it, it got to me it became very manifest destiny and very american mm. and very imperialist and so i think it can be incredibly dangerous to teach people to read the bible like that i don't think that that's that's not what it was meant to be that was a specific instance of one story in the bible it does not apply to all people for all time it especially doesn't apply to americans who are already used to imperializing and dominating people for our own gain and our territory is already too expansive we don't need to expand more we need to contract in a lot of senses so uh, i i don't i don't I have a hard time saying we should still encourage people to read the Bible just for their own edification like that. I don't think it's respectful to the text. I agree with you, Alan. And it's, and it's been unfortunate because it's hurt other people. And I think that's what Jeff was getting at saying people using it against others is, is the problem. And, and I agree. I think that's where it shows up most problematic is when you have slave owners reading to their slaves from the new Testament, justifying their harsh treatment of their slaves. Like I can't even, it happens um, a lot. It's, yeah. It happens, it's hard yeah. to swallow, but that, that actually happened. Uh, the the prayer of Jabez thing before we get away from it, Jabez, that was the name it and claim it thing, right? Where you like look at something and you say, <laughs> you say that's, that's still mine. around. There's been d- that, many different. I heard I heard people from your guys' circles maybe ten years ago. It was yeah. really funny. Someone was like, "Oh yeah, name it and claim it." They said it as a joke, but didn't don't like. I've seen churches like what march around other churches and be like, this building's going to be ours. And, you know, they're taking that yeah. directly from with the shofars <laughs> singing songs like freaking Joshua or J- that Jericho. Happened to you, Jeff, right. Your church. Yeah. Didn't someone march around your property and be like, hey, they, they did that all this stuff. Well, no, no march around our property, but we did, you know, prayer walks where we marched around, not necessarily properties, but, but secular places where we were going to win them for Christ and to get rid of the enemy and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, I mean, all that stuff is relevant. But just to to go back with what I'm talking about is I'm not saying that that's something that should be encouraged. But at the same time, I'm not saying that it shouldn't be discouraged. So like, well, what are you going to do when that young lady comes to you and says that you're just gonna say well that's the wrong interpretation no like, i would ask no, her what's I, going on in her life and her trying to get to the bottom of her context first before sure. exactly else. yeah definitely but that but that's what i'm saying is that is that i don't think that we can i i think that when we talk about these things i think they need to be applied in certain contexts and i don't think that we can that we should diminish what people have experienced and how they viewed something outright without without understanding their context in which they came to that conclusion. Yeah. Yeah. I think true. I would tell her, this is a really good example of what we're talking mm-hmm. about. Wow. This is, I, I would talk to her and I would tell her that that's awesome that, you know, God spoke to you that way or worked in your heart and mind. And that's great. And here's a couple other ways to look at it too. You know, the, there's, here's one, here's one, here's one and expand the horizon of that meaning for her. And yeah. hopefully like, it, but you're right. I think respecting different lenses is an important thing because, if you're beginning by just invalidating someone's lens, you never really get to 
do the the thing that you talked about originally, and that is collecting lenses and looking at them and trading them on and off as much as possible if we can even do that. Yeah, and I, I've come full circle to to that and appreciating my roots because I think it's a lot of times for those of us who like venture into liberal land who are who are, are post evangelical, it's it's kind of we we come some of us become frustrated with where we come from and we can disparage that, but those are also still important lenses and like people who believe in in demons or in false deities or powers and principalities like um, like the community I came from, you know, I might not agree with it, but they're actually reading the Bible with a certain lens in those beliefs. And they might see things that I don't see that might actually bring us all together closer to the way that ancient Near East peoples used to read these texts because they believe in powers and principalities. Or like the example that I heard recently from another scholar was um, sometimes African theologians, people writing in African context where there's very much like spiritualism and animism and mysticism still alive culturally. They're going to see different things in the text because of those lenses that I can't see. So it's, I think the point that we're kind of getting to with all of this is that like you said, Jeff, collecting lenses, like the the broad diversity of different ways that you can interpret is important. So yeah, we don't want to erase any voices, but I think there definitely are like, like Alan, you said faithful and less faithful, like more faithful and less faithful. I'm going to say lazy and less lazy because <laughs> I honest, I do think it is lazy just to only read the Bible and we can get ourselves in trouble with that. But it's also, it also can become kind of idolatrous to like be so insecure about that you study and study and study and study and study and study and you um, no longer can respect or treat the Bible with what it deserves. Right. So there's two ends of that spectrum that are to be avoided. Making the Bible to be out what we want it to be. Just the confirmation bias of seeing what we want to see definitely is an idolatrous practice because you're not affirming the reality of the otherness. And that could be the, you know, of God or the Bible or whatever. And that's, that's an important tension. But again, you're right. It's a tension between two things because on the other hand, we can't always have an objective. We can't ever have a 100% objective view of the other like that. Yeah. So like what do you make of the Jefferson Bible? You know, like we're, Jefferson <laughs> cut that's... out all of the miraculous <laughs> stuff in there. And that's yeah. another form of violence against the text, right? You either, it is. You're, you're trying to make it your own thing, I think, you know? It's it's still wrong, even though a lot of people, liberals today might be like, oh, he was, you know, a human, a humanist and an enlightened thinker. And therefore, he wanted to make the Bible into this thing that would make sense to him. And but you're still, you know, it's the same crime. I think it just has a different face. So, <laughs> well, OK, so if, if I can give an example of uh, reader response and reading something through a specific lens, I might have mentioned this in episode four. But there's a book, Can I Get a Witness? And it's by Brian K. Blount. The subtitle is Reading Revelation Through African-American Culture. So I've read Revelation, not as an Afri- African-American, but as a, you know, a young white kid in uh, California in the early 2000s. <laughs> and I didn't pick up the same thing that Brian K. Blount picked up. And just, just as one example, there's a part in Revelation where martyrs have these white robes and they dress and they've been murdered by the empire. And now they are getting these white robes and, and wearing them and, and surrounding the throne of God. So Blount talks about how dress was a symbol, symbolic action of identity for people in Revelation. There's this passage where there are martyrs who have been murdered by the empire and they have their robes dipped and they're, they're white. You know, they're these gleaming robes. 
and they're surrounding the throne of God. And he reads this through the perspective of African-Americans who have descended from slaves. And it was slave owners who told the slaves what they had to wear, when they could wear it, you know, what they were to look like. And so when, when his ancestors got freedom from the slavery, they would dress in certain ways, you know, opulently or whatever, as, as an expression of self-identity. And so he, when he reads Revelation, he reads something very different than, than I read. And he sees it as a rejection of the empire's ownership of the physical body. Not only did, you know, the Roman Empire in Revelation kill these martyrs, these witnesses, but like now that they are connected to God, it's not just the body that they had control of. Although they could have control of their body, they never had the possession of what he calls uh, their redressed and eternal psyche that is key to their identity. And so now they are dressing themselves in this white and it's this political statement. And for him, he sees all of this significance. Whereas when I read it, I just think about, you know, Tide or something and a washer. (laughs) Hmm. So there's, there's different lenses that we can use for reading scripture to bring out different meanings and they mean different things for us. And you're right. Maybe some of these lenses actually bring us a lot closer to what the original people thought, but even if they don't, it's important to see the meaning that's being created in different communities. See, I wonder if the goal isn't to find out what the original intenders thought, but to create a connection with the original writers. You know what I mean? Like a little bridge. Yeah. Like, like a shared experience or something like that. Cause for me, when I look at this stuff and you know, I talked about the lectionary podcast um, in the beginning. And one of the things about the lectionary that really resonates with me personally is this idea that, I'm a part of something larger and I can connect my story with not only people who are like-minded, but especially people who have completely different experiences that somewhere in those differences, there are enough similarities to where I, I at least can gain enough understanding to learn to appreciate. Um, where I think sometimes when we say that we want to, we want to find out what the original writers intended, we, we go, we, we slowly kind of get back into that mode of, well, we need to find the answer, the one solution, the one thing that makes that, that this writer really wanted to communicate. So I think that there's, there's a balance with maybe the approach on how we, I don't, I don't know if that's just, well, too... no, reader response actually, for the most part, suggests that we can't know what the original writers were attend, uh, intended because, and there's some we're so far that. removed. <laughs> there's some truth to that. We're yeah. so far removed that you're absolutely right, Jeff. Like we can't know what was in their heads. We can't know why Paul uh, at one point said, uh, wives submit to your husbands. And then at another point said, there's no, neither male nor female in Christ. Like we can't know that. <laughs> and we can't go back we can and get ask into him. the ballpark though. We, yeah, know, he, he doesn't mean he's not talking about when he says woman, he's not referring to a planet, right? He's referring to women. So like there's, right. there's a general range of meanings, but you're right. It's not as if we can pinpoint exactly where it's at all the time. And sometimes yeah. it's more difficult than others. But I like what you said, connecting a story. Yeah. Yeah. Our lenses will draw out specific connections that we have that other people wouldn't have. But as we collect, we don't have, we don't then have those same collect, those same connections, but we do have now an understanding of new connections. Yeah. That, that's really helpful, I think. And it's the listening that's hard. I just kind of want to end with that. It's the listening that's hard, especially when I have a privileged interpretation that I that means a lot to me. And when I hear someone else read something very differently, um, it kind of touches on a very 
deep part of me and, you know, threatens my identity that someone has a different identity and a different reading (laughs) of a text that I love. So the listening is the hard part, but that's, that's actually the whole point of doing Bible interpretation. That's the point of this whole series. Doing interpretation together is what matters because it's not this, this doesn't, this isn't owned by any one of us, right? It's owned by all of us. And that's all the people throughout history. That's all the, the Christians and non-Christians that have been interacting with this, this book, this collection of texts. And if we listen to the whole, we get a better picture of what's going on. Um, and I think it's much more faithful to what the spirit personally, what the spirit is doing in these texts. Yeah. So, so what for, for you two are your takeaways, not just for this episode, but kind of this overall, I mean, Alan, that was a good summing up of what we talked about, but if there's anything to add to like why this series, why it's important. Well, okay. So for me, it, I think Alan, I've been, th- I've been churning on this question of like how I differ from you and understanding that these books are inspired. Yes. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I, I want to speak to that for a minute. For me, I think it's actually important to hold at arm's length that the spirit is working through the text because it suspends the 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 proclivity I think that we have um, to come to the and I'm not saying you do Alan but I think I've seen a lot of people do this to come to these texts with a sense of pride that because God's speaking to you you're going to get it right and you have the answers and so I think if we just hold that in suspension um, and do the hard work first before we seek to understand how the Holy Spirit or if the Holy Spirit's working um, and look at how we, how we are working and how, what we are doing with the text first I think that's uh, really helpful to holding these texts with an open hand. And like you said, realizing that we don't have ownership of them, but not even like we have a, uh, a monopoly on understanding God's purposes or God's voice through these texts either, that mm. it's complicated and we are responsible for the ways that we use these words. We're very responsible. God's not going to prevent us from committing violence with this, with these books. God does not do that. There's been and horrific in the past and yeah. hasn't, there's been horrific violence c- done under these texts. Um, um, and so I think, you know, in order to really make sure that we are giving them their full respect, we have to come to it with, a, you know, with ourselves, you know, and, and, and do and it prayerfully humility. and humility and do it prayerfully. Sure. Um, ask for illumination. Ask for wisdom. Absolutely. But don't assume that God is speaking capital S all the time to you and that you've got it. I, I think that's very dangerous. So that's my caveat. That's awesome. Otherwise, have fun. Think, have I fun, kids. <laughs> I think that's well said. Man, I, I... Thank you. That's awesome. Yeah. I actually, uh, along those lines, I agree. I agree with Alan in reverse. Not opposite, but in reverse, in the sense that I don't think that it is God revealing God's self through the Holy Spirit, through the text or whatever, that, that, that God is trying to communicate something to us. I think... God has provided an avenue for us to communicate to one another so that our interpretation is not God speaking to us. Our We interpret ourselves. Whoa. No, no it, I in think a way, it does. Yeah. In a way, is that is that the 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 many things that God may be trying to say is not is is not revealed in the text, but in the various interpretations of the text. If that makes any sense. I know it's a small nuance, but no, I think that sense. the only way that we can really discern or find out how the whatever word we want to use, but how the spirit is moving and communicating is through someone else's lens. Because I mean, if we're, if we're looking at the idea of the Holy spirit and its intention, like it, it lives in the people. So what better way to understand more of what God is doing than connect with as many people as possible. That's cool. Although I, I agree like with the spirit of that. I'll give my final Orthodox <laughs> <laughs> answer to the question. Um, I would just say I fully embrace 
and cling to the otherness of God and the otherness of scripture. So my definition of love is to respect that something is not me and to get to know it for what it is. As hard mm-hmm. as that is, you know, as many lenses as I have, uh, as, as subjective as my experience of the world is, there still is realities outside of myself. And so loving the Bible means listening to it well and actually looking at it and asking hard questions that make me uncomfortable that might not make the Bible uncomfortable or the people that wrote it. Um, and maybe it will make them uncomfortable, but that's the, the point of love is to get to know but they're dead. The, the object of the affection. <laughs> <I know>. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just imagining in my mind, okay, different communities of kidding, editors and stuff. So questions of genre and narrative, why things are put together the way they are, sources, you know, even the way other people read it now, all of those help me to get to know this this objective other, right? And God is this other. And so I'm just doing my best to love uh, it for what it is and to, to read it faithfully because I love God for who God is. And that is the impossible task of stepping outside of myself is what I'm constantly coming to. And that means considering other people's perspectives, considering the historical, you know, those kinds of things, while also owning the fact that I have my own perspective. But still, in the end, it is really about love for God and love for the way God is using the Bible and present in the Bible. And that means getting to know it for what it is and not and I would say, forcing I would say God is not present in the Bible, but in the people reading the Bible. Yeah, that's a classic neo-Orthodox way of looking at it, that the spoken the spoken word is the word because some because the slave owner reading, you know, parts of the New Testament to a slave is not the voice of God, is not God's words, right? It's uh something totally different. So the right preaching or the right speaking of the words, whether that is to one context or another, is where God shows up is a common idea. Yeah, and I'm thinking about the the speech itself, the you know, Jesus is the logos in the New Testament, is that the invocation of the conversation itself invokes God, invokes these the like divine processes or divine presence. So the proclamation is what uh, matters. That's how some people I don't like proclamation, but I like your wrap up. (laughs) (laughs) I think we should whisper. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) No, I I think we should, you know, we should breathe. Depends on what it depends on what we're (laughs) proclaiming, I guess. Right. All right. Well, we hope that this series has been helpful for you and that hope, hopefully it continues to be a resource for you when, when figuring out how and how, how you're going to approach scripture. Let us know more about what you think. If you have anything to add to this particular episode, you can do that at irenacast.com slash 65. And for questions, comments, concerns, and suggestions for the show in general, you can find all the ways to contact us at irenacast.com slash feedback. So we're going to close out this series with a new segment called Bible Oddities. So we figured this would be a good way to end a series on the Bible, especially this one as we talk about like it in its own context and stuff like that, because the reality of it is in a lot of the Bible, there's some weird stuff in there that even when we have a, some historical context, it's still difficult to understand why it's in there or why that even happened. And, and this is kind of a segment where we're going to highlight some of the, the oddities of scripture, or at least odd to us. Um, so I, we've each picked 
a section of scripture to to talk about uh and hopefully <laughs> hopefully it, it's a fun conversation or not fun conversation depending upon your view there's a lot of stuff in there man a lot of stuff some fun things and uh, a lot of stuff makes me so <laughs> mad and uncomfortable i'll go last i'll, I'll go it's, last. it's all the stuff that that didn't make the flannel graph in sunday school that's right, right. yeah like we we, uh, we all know the story of noah and it, it for everyone who's gone to sunday school it ends at the rainbow but that's not where it ends it ends in the vineyard with a drunk naked man and a son looking at him that's right, right. like we don't put that in the flannel graph <laughs> no we definitely not. don't <laughs> okay what's yours jeff you want to go first yeah i'll go first okay so mine comes from judges chapter three verses 21 to 25 and it is uh judges is a very violent very violent book a lot of interesting stories popular place for oddities i would say (laughs) yes yes so this one is there is a a king it's eglon i think is how you pronounce it i'm horrible with pronouncing these sounds like something out of star star wars doesn't it right yeah it makes me uncomfortable well, isn't Endor in the Bible from Star Wars? Isn't the the name Endor? Yeah, in the Bible? yeah, the so. witch. That's the witch, the witch of Endor. Endor. There's yeah. a yeah. witch that shows up that conjures Sam, uh, Saul, King Saul, or something like See? that. That's all good. That's exactly why it sounds like Star Wars. <laughs> anyway, sorry. So, so Elgon is a an extremely Eglon. overweight king. Eglon, sorry, I got confused with Endor. <laughs> and we learn that he is so large, in fact, that when he is plunged through the gut with a sword by his assassin it causes him to defecate mercilessly in his chamber to the point where his men or his workers they don't go in there because they don't think anything's wrong they just merely think that he is really doing his, his regular business so uh i just i don't know i think that's a that's a funny story and i mainly picked it just for you alan yeah that i'll tell you why i don't <laughs> because of the poop thing uh, yeah, it's it's an interesting story because like uh, the guy's left handed, right? Which is uh, there's like twenty. If, if my memory corrects me or or not, yeah. Um, the only left handed person mentioned in the book at all. Interesting. There, there's so like twenty left-handed. like uh, instances where being left handed is already not correct. It's like in the Bible, it's right? Kosher. <laughs> yeah. 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 Right. Well, but he. It's, this it's is the only person that it's specifically applied to. Hmm. Like they talk about left-handedness, but this is the only left-hander that they talk about. Interesting. Part, so part of the story is he. Uh, so the reason Eglon is fat is just a uh, an example of how he oppressed the people. You know, there was a lot for him, but not a lot for these people who have been oppressed. These Israelites who've been oppressed, and he has fashioned a sword that can fit inside of um i don't even know it's just like a movie inside of his boot right he has got a sword inside of his boot he's left-handed so the king doesn't see it coming because he's left-handed and uh he he says he has something secret for the king to see and all the people hide outside you know the the he the king dismisses everybody <laughs> that sounds funny here yeah, i, I want to show you something <laughs> he dismisses everybody uh he, he locks the door so the guy stabs him and the sword disappears in his stomach. We always, you know, talked about that as kids, like, oh, that's so cool. He stabbed this fat king and the sword disappears inside of his stomach or whatever. The reason this is disturbing for me is because I almost taught Bible in a junior high before they kicked me out for, you know, um going to a church that was open and affirming. That's a long story, but that aside, there was these comic books in the in the Bible class. That illustrated this stuff and made it like I've talked about judges like being the comic books of the Bible. And that's true. 
I really do look at these like the heroes, you know, the Captain America, the Iron Man, you know, uh, Jehu or whoever this guy is being this hero of of the Hebrew people. But it was like created into a comic book that's not critical of the stories at all. You know, just like giving these young adolescent males all these stories that are super violent and not questioning any of them. It was just a little uncomfortable for me. I think it's called like the Action Bible. You should look it up. Oh my goodness. I've seen that. I saw that when I worked in a Bible bookstore. Give it to well, that's how, that's how you get people interested in the Bible, right? As you show them all the gross and weird stuff. <laughs> right. <laughs> and Song of Solomon's, and that's how you get them hooked. And then <laughs> it, the first one's always free, Alan. Always. <laughs> all right. So mine comes from Judges 11 and 12. It's a, also a weird-ass story. And I'm not talking about Balaam's donkey, because that would really be a weird-ass story. <laughs> all right. Uh, this is a story about a man named Jephthah, who was a judge in judges in the time of judges and he wanted to defeat somebody and he made an oath to god saying whatever comes through the doors uh, out of the doors of my house uh when i return in peace from this battle i will sacrifice it or them as a burnt offering to the lord and so he was victorious he came back home and his daughter walks out of the tent of the house And he tears his clothes and says, alas, my daughter, you've brought me low, but I have to keep my word to the Lord. I can't back out. And so his daughter, who is unnamed, uh, asks for two months and she gathered some of her friends to go up on the mountains and weep for her virginity. That's what the text says. Weep for her lost virginity. And then after that two months, Jephthah killed her, apparently. The text says he, he did with her according to the vow that he had made. Uh, anyway, the story ends by saying, uh, the daughters of Israel would go year by year to lament her death. In the next chapter, Jephthah captures a bunch of people and asks them to say this password, Shibboleth, but they can't say it because they can't say the sh syllable. So they're also murdered. They say Sibboleth instead of Shibboleth. And, uh, they killed like 40,000 people. And he was like heralded as this like great warrior and like laid to rest after he died in honor so it's a story that everyone's like wtf what what is why is this in here like writers for the last two thousand years have been trying to figure out or three thousand years um some people think it's based on the greek legend of idiomaeus uh who sacrificed it is a similar sort of thing asked the gods to calm a storm promising return that he would sacrifice the first living thing he saw uh, on his return, which turned out to be his son. So some people think that this story might have come first or vice versa, that maybe the Hebrew story uh, influenced the Greek mythology. We don't know for sure. So anyway, all that to say, uh, a lot of the feminist and womanist writers have taken up this story as like unexplained violence that is never quite um, condemned by any biblical voice, especially not the voice of God saying that I didn't want you to hold that oath. It's just he's celebrated and it's awful. So... There you go. So speaking of violent texts that make us all uncomfortable and question <laughs> all sorts of things. So mine mine comes from Numbers chapter 5. And it's the infamous Sota pa- passage, which has been talked about throughout Jewish antiquity. And it refers to these laws uh, that when a man is suspecting his wife has had an affair, even if there are no witnesses, uh, if he's jealous to the point where he can't stand it anymore he can bring her before the priest and the priest makes this concoction of holy water of dust from the ground of these verses he's written on a scroll and uh, makes her take this solemn pledge and curse where she curses herself if she's guilty 
when she drinks this poisonous stuff, she'll have a miscarriage. But if she's not guilty, everything will be totally fine. And I wrote about this a while ago. I call it the divine coin flip. It's on the website. But to me, it's like this, uh, I don't know, Monty Python burning the witch kind of thing. Like you throw her in the water. If she's um, guilty, she'll float because she can. she's a witch and she can swim. But if she's not, she'll drown. And to me, it's like I, I'm reading my Bible. My Bible is totally normal. But then you have this moment where it's like this coin flip where this woman is you know, subjected to her husband's jealousy, to the priest, to all these different layers of, I would even call oppression. And it's just, uh, it's uncomfortable for me. You know, it's... uh, That's kind of stuff actually happened during the Salem witch trials. And uh, Mm -hmm. I was watching a documentary, an anthropological uh, film a couple of years ago, where there are actually still tribes in Africa that uh, will poison... um, chickens or like young fowl to determine if there's been infidelity like um and the witch doctors will conduct a ceremony and if the chickens die then they uh then they're the people are punished or they have to get a divorce or something so that's i mean that's that would be really interesting to understand before reacting to it which is my inclination to just be completely upset and disgusted and picture myself in that situation you know and how awful that would be to go through that being poisoned by your spouse you know i i don't know i don't think it's that different though than breaking trust and having to have a paternity test done or something like that i mean it's it's really interesting in a to culture see. where paternity tests are not possible by the way right you know, exactly that's what i was about to say implications that yeah that you kind of miss and don't see going on but still regardless it, I, I think even if i completely understood it would make me uncomfortable you know yeah yeah that's good. Thanks for letting us end on that one. Alan. Yeah. Appreciate it. This is a depressing segment, wasn't My it? My bad. I can't believe I'm about to say this, but I feel like I don't know. It feels weird to end on that note. So, yeah. Alan, will you tell a joke? Oh, really? A really cheesy. You got so joke. excited just now. Did you hear that? I did. He did. And it has to be a cheesy Bible joke. Must be. Must be. That's how we have to end. Because if we don't, then I don't. I don't want to end on that last. <laughs> yeah, one. that's too much. Do I get to tell a joke, though? For real? Yeah, tell the joke. Okay, so here's an oldie but a goodie. Uh, (laughs) What? um, When was the first... You probably know this, Jeff, but I'm going to say it anyway. When when was the first baseball game in the Bible? You remember? Uh I don't know if I know the bases one. I remember the basketball one, but not the bases one. Oh, you remember the basketball one? Go for it. The basketball one was David's court. That's right, right David's court. Yeah. The first these are so, <laughs> so stupid. I used to get so excited when I was in junior high. The first baseball game was in the beginning. In the big Oh ending. my gosh. Oh my god. <laughs> All right. <laughs> wow. Yes, I did it. All right. Well, on that note, that'll do it for us this week. If you enjoy what you hear and you want to support Irenacast, you can go to Irenacast.com slash support for the many ways to show love to the podcast. Don't forget to check out the Facebook group, Post Evangelicals. We started this group for people like us who want to connect and build community. You can find the link in the show notes. And also, don't forget our upcoming book club. Sign up for that. All the information is on the website. So for this week, I'm Jeff. I'm Mona. And I'm Alan. Thanks for joining the conversation. All right. <laughs> and now they're done. <laughs> the books. And now they're done. Of course they are. Of course they are. Okay, bye.